Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, it's The Kids Podcast. This one's a discussion recorded with Lystra Rose and the Readings Teen Advisory Board. Rose's The Upwelling is a fascinating deep dive into the traditional culture of the Yugambeh people, proudly showcasing their language and practice throughout the narrative. To host and introduce the discussion, here is Readings' own Angela Crocombe. Hello, Kate, and hello, Lystra. Hi, Angela. Hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Welcome. Welcome to the Teen Advisory Board. I'm going to give a short intro to Kate, and then Kate will introduce Lystra. But I wanted to say thank you so much for giving us copies of The Upwelling. We've all had copies. We've all been loving it and reading it. Yeah, thank you so much to Hachette for sharing them with us. So Kate Stevens is the commissioning editor of children's books at Hachette, and uh, you've been an editor since 2010 and are now commissioning authors including Danielle Binks, Jennifer Cousins and Mulga the Artist. Kate also convened and taught the postgraduate book editing subject at the University of Technology Sydney for three years running and publishes fiction and non-fiction for young people of all ages. So yeah, thank you, Kate, and I will hand over to you now. Thank you so much, Angela, and hello, everyone. It's such a, a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting us. I'd like to say on a personal note, it's been a real career highlight of mine to work with Lystra on The Upwelling, so it gives me great pleasure to be here and to introduce you all to her. Lystra is a Gorgor Yimidir Birigaba Arab writer with Scottish ancestry. She is the editor of Australia's iconic Surfing Life magazine and the executive producer of Surfing Life TV. In fact, she is the first female editor-in-chief of a mainstream surf magazine in the world. She is also the award-winning author of this incredible, soon-to-be-published YA debut, The Upwelling. Lystra, hello. Hello, everybody. Wow, that was a quite an introduction. I'm a little <laughs> bit nervous because really I just like to, uh, to write in my, I call it the cave here. I like to write quietly in my dark little corner and then you forget that this is the other side of writing. Is, um, <laughs> you get to chat to people about it, which I love. It's, it's, it's great, especially when you get to chat to people who love reading and I'll just say Yuru Wandra, which is hello, how are you all? And this is in Google Yimidir. So, yes, I've got a few different countries that I'm connected to culturally. Google Yimidir is at, just across from Cooktown. It's in Hopevale. It's in Cape York Peninsula. Birigaba is actually Mackay area. And Arab is Darnley Islander. So I'm actually Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. So I have those ancestral ties to all of those countries. I should do an acknowledgement to um, the elders past and present and the Kumbari people here that I'm here at the Gold Coast, um, which is you can best speaking country for this whole region. Um, I'd like to pay my respects to them. I'm a guest here on this country because my mob of other places. And I'd like to pay respect to all of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from the countries where you're from and also to your ancestors too because they travelled across vast distances to come here 
and they actually weave our past and our present together and our future together. So honour honor your ancestors too in that way. And I'm just stoked that you guys picked the upwelling. I'm really stoked that you guys have been doing that and picked that. So thank you. Thanks for having me along. So Lystra, I've just got a, a bunch of questions for you. I thought we could have a, a bit of a chat and then I might open up the floor to any questions from the board. To start with Lystra, when we meet Kira in the opening chapter of The Upwelling, she's having a, a pretty tough time in high school. And I wanted to ask you, what were you like at Kira's age? Where were you living? And what did you like to read? Okay. So when I was Kira's age, 16, I actually lived in a little remote community um, in far north Queensland, in Cape York. So you would catch, from Cairns, you would catch uh, a plane for three hours and the plane had nine seats in it. There wouldn't be an air hostess. So just pass out food through it. And when you went through turbulence, you would drop like a roller coaster, like it was such a tiny plane. And the community was so remote. You had to order all your groceries and they would send it up by barge every few months. There were no hairdressers, no shops. We didn't even have bitumen roads. It was all red dirt Road. So when I went to school, um, it was quite a small school. I didn't even speak English for the whole time I was there. We had to speak English in school, but I spoke Torres Strait Island Creole. I just remember at that stage, I find there can be this quite quite wrestle as a 16-year-old where you love to be unique and different and you want to find what you're really great at. But at the same time, there's that tug of war of fitting in and, and having like-minded friends and having people that you love to chat with and who get you and get get your interests and who you are too. And I think that's what I really wanted to have Kira in that because I think that's relatable for us all, really. Do you know what I mean? So Bamaga, I lived a very different life. Um, my father took me spearing for crabs and waist-deep water, and that's crop country. So you had someone sitting on the bank with a big spotlight and they would just be moving along the bank because if you saw any red eye, you had to get out of the water really quick. Like it was, we have three or four metre man-eating crocs up there. It's a very different lifestyle. I learned how to drive when I was 13 on forward drive on the beach. We'd collect the mail on motorbikes. We all had motorbikes and we'd go up and collect the mail when we were teenagers. We didn't need a licence because we were so remote, so we got to do a lot of things that you can get away with when you when you live in that, that kind of area. I liked reading a whole heap because, I mean, we didn't have the movies and we didn't have a whole heap of things until we flew out to Cairns and we flew to the big city. So, I mean, we did a whole heap of fishing and reading, heaps of time for reading. But I guess historical fiction, I would have been a little bit younger. Anna Green Gables, now I know that sounds so old-fashioned, but my grandmother actually got me into that. Her her name was Anne with an E and um, she's in New Zealand and she had a, a green gabled house and so she had a sign at the front of her house, Anna Green Gables. So that's why I think I got into that and I just love when you can get into a book and it's just so different, the language is so different, how they used to live and I think that's that's why I, I enjoyed writing that welling too, to mm. have that side of historical fiction and, and you could go back and be a part of that. You didn't grow up surfing, so you came to surfing a bit later in life and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to surf and also 
how you came to write because I think these two things might be inextricably linked. Is that right? I wrote my first dreaming story when I was in grade three and my mum was at university being a teacher and the lecturer actually got her to bring me up and said, hey, never stop writing, you're a natural writer. And then when I was 16, no, 15, I won the Queensland competition for gifted and talented for writing. I was the youngest, so it was from 15 to 17, and I won that. And for me, it was quite a bit of cash at the time. It was 300 bucks, but back then I was just like, oh, my goodness, this is so much money. But in regards to writing this novel, yes, it was really linked with surfing. So my husband's been a surfer. When I was a, a lot younger, he tried to take me surfing and I'm not going to lie, I chucked a big tantrum. I grew up in rapids, crocodiles I can handle, rapids I can handle, but I'd never really swam in the ocean before with waves. We just don't have that up north. A, there's stingers and crocodiles, so we're always freshwater people. Anyway, so he took me surfing and I chucked a big tantrum and I just said, oh, I'll never surf. Fast forward probably about 10 years later. So, yes, I, I was a... In my 30s, I had I had four major surgery. I was bedridden for three years. They didn't think I would walk again. And my second surgery went shockingly terrible. I had the doctor come in and he said, we don't think you're going to make it. And um, he goes, can you breathe? He goes, your face is blue. I couldn't speak. I couldn't breathe. The surgery, I just didn't handle it very well. He just said, unless we start giving you blood transfusions, we don't think you're going to make it. And it was really weird for me because at that time I just went, is this it? Is this, you know, when people talk about it, is this it for me? Am I really seriously this close to not making it? And I started thinking about all the things in my life and I thought about surfing, which is really bizarre, and I thought I didn't surf because I was scared of sharks and I was scared of big waves. And so I vowed in that hospital bed, if I get through this, I'm never going to let fear stop me from doing anything again. And I honestly believe that fear should be our friend and we have to chase after it and that I surf every day. It's a great reminder. I'm still scared of sharks. I'm still scared of really big waves, but it's a really great reminder and it helps you in so many other areas of your life if you've got something that you're afraid of that you just keep doing and you keep doing and keep doing and every time I surf I always write better it's such a creative tap for me so yeah so that's how it kind of led I was surfing at Kira so I'm in the Gold Coast you can best speak in country so I was surfing at Kira Point beautiful lovely turquoise water and I thought hey um, I wonder what the land was before European influence. That was when I had the idea for Kira, who's named after that point. And I, I just thought, I wonder if I can write a book. Is there a book in me? I think, um, especially when it's your first. And I thought I'll give it a crack. Entered a comp a year later and, um, yeah, won it. So it, it included getting publishing opportunities with Hachette too so if I hadn't of gone through all of that pain and and being bedridden for three years and all of that there's no way I would have been a surfer and there's no way the upwelling would have even come into fruition so so fear is a very good thing. Lestrade you mentioned the Black and White Fellowship just then could you tell us a little bit about the the Black and White Fellowship and what it meant for you and for your book to win it? I mean, this is going to sound strange now that because you guys have my book and you're reading, but for me, I just didn't know if 
I didn't even think about being a writer, even though I had those things in my past that obviously showed that I could write. And I got great grades in English for, for writing. I always did. If it hadn't have been the Black and Right Fellowship, which is run by the State Library, and it's for an, it gives Indigenous people opportunities to go into this comp from all around Australia. And I honestly, I just wouldn't have pitched my book anywhere. I just wouldn't have written it except that I knew that that comp, and I thought, okay, well, I'll enter that next year and I'll see if I can do it and see where, see where it leads. But what's really cool about it is, too, you get to work with Indigenous editors. You get to really... Uh, solidify your Indigenous voice. So for most Indigenous people, I can't speak for all Indigenous people, but for my friends and my family, my elders, and we do what's called code switching. So it means that when we go to school, because it's a Western school, we talk West. Like when I'm at home, I can talk numerous different languages. When we're in school, we talk West. So when I did every English assignment, I would never put Aboriginal terms or an Aboriginal voice in it. So I would get VHAs from my assignment, but I really code switched and it was very much a, a European Western way of writing. So when I worked with Black and Right, it was so freeing and, and just going, oh, actually, I can use language. I can I can make my characters think the way that we think and speak and really have that um, Indigenous voice um, come through in the way that I wanted to do it. And it was great working with those editors to have that kind of support to, to do that and to, to, to nut around. So being an Indigenous person, we have what's called cultural protocol. Another word is law, L-O-R-E. So it means whenever I have decisions to make, it's never my decision. I have to talk to a whole number of elders and community members and all of that because of our knowledge is a shared knowledge. I don't own it. We are custodians of knowledge and that, that's a shared knowledge. So whenever I'm having any of these processes, I've got to work within a whole heap of different people who um, I trust and I will always continue to listen and learn and grow because that's just a part of our cultural protocol, our, our law, our L-O-R-E. Can I ask you a little bit more about that, Lystra? Because when telling First Nations stories, it's important to obtain permission from knowledge holders. Could you tell me a little bit about why this is so important and how you navigated this process? In Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture, it's a very slow-moving way. Um, so Western way would be if you wanted to get um, knowledge for something, right, Western way, you'd grab on the phone, you go, hey, I need this and I need this to happen. I need da, 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 and you line up all your ducks and you, you get it to happen, right? That's very Western way. That's the way the school system is. In Aboriginal and Islander culture, um, it's a very, very slow process. And to show respect and honour, um, you have to be willing to take the time. That's why it took me five years to do the upwelling because I'm not from this country and because there was a surfer in my book, there's no surf from all of my countries where I'm from, where I'm traditionally linked, there is no surf. So for me to be able to set it in a surf scene, I needed to work here. And I really wanted to pay respect and honour because I'm a guest here. I'm privileged to be living in Nugumbear-speaking country. So it was a way for me to honour and to give back to the community that I'm now a part of too. And I do have cousins um, and their cousins are traditional custodians. They count me as cousins and they actually count me as part of the country here. But I I, I am a guest here and I'm very clear when I say that. So for me, it's taken five years. And so the process 
through our cultural is that you wait and you wait till someone you know. So it's all connected and it's all through relationship. So I wait till someone I know who's Indigenous introduces me to this person and then I wait till I'm introduced to this person, to this person, to this person. I actually didn't have cups of tea and morning tea and all of that with You Can Bear Elders um, until this year. I've been working on this book for five or six years, even though they knew who I was and I was working with their daughter and grandkids and all of that kind of stuff. This is just the way the process is. But what it meant, which actually made me really teary, was when I actually got to meet with them, they just said, hey, we're really proud of what you've done. It's a very brave thing and the way that you've applied yourself to do that. And because it it can be frustratingly slow. It, it's a very, very different way to West, and especially because I'm working with a Western organisation. So we're working with Western deadlines and Western timeframes. And, and for me to be able to get permission for one bit of it, um, for example, there's Wollumbin, which is a sacred mountain. It's Mount Warning. It's the first place you can see the sunrise and the whole eastern coast of Australia. Wollumbin is a men's sacred site. Clever men used to actually live on the top of Wollumbin, famous, famous clever men. It's a men's site. For me to actually use the word Wollumbin in my book, that is men's sacred knowledge, it should have taken me six months to get that kind of process and to get that permission. But my cousin's cousins and because I'd slowly been talking to community. So in the back of my acknowledgements, I've got like 20 to 30 Indigenous people I've talked to and who have put their name, um, said, yes, we give you permission, we give you permission and all that kind of thing. It's a, it's so very different to the Western way. And I guess for me how I like to explain it is we have the circle. So you would have read in my book The Circle of Elders, right? So in our culture, we have a circle. So that means like jajam, so children and young people and older people, it doesn't matter your gender, it doesn't matter your age, you have an equal place in a circle, you have an equal voice in a circle, you have that equal respect in a circle. The Western way is more of a pyramid shape. So people climb their way to the top. So to be the boss, you start at the bottom and then you climb your way up to the top. That's a very, very different system because you then you become the top and you become that knowledge holder the authority of that knowledge, right? You think about universities and the lecturers, they're the, they're the, or even teachers at your school, they're the knowledge holders, right? They're the authority. They stand up the front and they teach you. In Indigenous culture, we have that circle. So even though we have elders we listen to, the more knowledge you're given, the more responsibility and accountability you have for that knowledge and keeping and being a custodian. You never own it. You tread lightly with it. So for me, getting that permission for my book, it was massive to actually get every family member in the Yugambeh region to be a part of that process. It meant any changes. It meant even the way in the acknowledgement, because I had some, some members who have passed away and I wanted to say thank you to them because they had given me permission for shared knowledge. And then I had to approach all of their family and go, hey, are you okay for me to use their name if they've passed away in my book? Um, just to say thank you at the end of the acknowledgements. And how do you want me to say it? Do you want me to say the late you solar best, or do you want me to just say you solar best? Do you want me to say auntie? How do you want me to say it? So all of those processes are quite long and it's quite lengthy compared to the Western way. The Western way, the author really, it's my words, it's my story, 
and I just approach it and I think who I want, right? Mm-hmm. The the Indigenous way, even though a lot of that is it's my story and it's my fictional ideas and, and all of those things, it's, it's the way we approach and the way we talk and communicate. So everyone in the acknowledgement read all of those acknowledgements before I went to print. That's just part of the way I honour them and I keep our law, our L-O-R-E, yes, strong and make sure that that shared story, as soon as I've gotten knowledge from that community, that's a shared story then all the way to print. I no longer own the story. It's a shared story. Mm. So that's, I guess, the biggest difference in our cultures. Lister, I wanted to ask you about the process of writing for you because you're the editor-in-chief of Surfing Life magazine. You're the executive producer of Surfing Life TV. You homeschool two children. Where do you find the time to write? Like how did you make that work? Yeah. I get up at four and I write for four. The time just goes quick. I'll look up and four hours have gone. I do that because it's quiet. I do that because no one's sending you text messages at four. You've already seen everything on Facebook and Instagram. Everyone's asleep. There's nothing new. So it's easy for your mind to deal with that because it's like, okay, I'm getting up. Everyone's asleep. So I'm not going to make a big loud noise. And when the rest of my family, my kids are asleep. So I just uh, grab a herbal tea and I sneak downstairs. And I have to be honest, when I was some of those scenes, especially with the malung, the shadow spirit, which is quite a very real spiritual thing here, it's pitch black outside. I've got a big double sliding door window. And so um, I'm, I'm writing at four in the morning downstairs in my little office. For me, I think uh, the best editing tip I, that, that I give all of my writers who write for me, um, we've got writers around the world um, who write for me for Surfing Life. And this is what I apply to all my writing, whether it's for my novel, whether it's for Surfing Life, whether it's poetry, whatever it is. I record everything I write. So you read aloud, which you guys would have heard about before. You read aloud with full expression, but you record it. And if you record it and you listen to that piece over and over, I'm I'm talking 10 times, Mm -hmm. and you have a notebook and pen with you, because the way, because we're not reading that piece, so don't read it, just listen to it over and over. You could even go for a walk. I go for a walk and I've got a bum bag, which is pretty daggy, and a notebook and a pen in there, but I listen to it over and over. And what, what it does is your brain, because it's an auditory process, the cadence of the words, your brain will actually tell you the right words that should be in there. If you stumble when you're recording, you know you need to polish that. If you're walking and you start daydreaming about something else, you know that's a boring bit and you know you need to go. So you make a note for that sentence and you've got to go and polish it. You've got to break it up into shorter bits because that's a boring bit. So you want to change the length of your sentence. And most people don't do it because it it's like, oh, it's such an annoying thing to do. But for me, I do it for every single piece I write and I find it just works the best because it's the cadence. And I think readers really love, when they love that writing, it's a cadence that they're listening to. So you can feel the syllables, you feel the motion, you feel it speeding up and slowing down. That's that auditory process. And you miss that if you're just using your eyes to read and correct your work. Lister, I was going to ask you a little bit about the research that went into the upwelling. You've touched on this a little bit already, but I know that um, you did an incredible amount 
of, of research for this book. And I just wondered if you could um, talk us through that a little bit. There was a lot of um, things where I just wanted to make sure that I could do everything in the book. Here in the Gold Coast, you can have an invite to go to Indigenous Artist Camp. I've been lucky enough to be selected twice. Um, on Indigenous Artists Camp, you're with other artists. It's really funny because they're all visual artists and I'm the only writer, so I always thought I kind of go, I'm not really an artist. And then um, they've all told me off and said, you're not allowed to say that anymore, especially now because the cover of The Upwelling, I actually did the art for that. But I'll let you in on a little secret. I'm now a professional finger painter because that bottom row was just complete finger painting and they did a painting on top of that. So I quite like to be able to say I may be the first finger professional finger <laughs> painter in the world, which I think that would be quite an achievement to have that. I think that would be quite fun. I could give finger painting lessons, you know, to people who want to be able to do the upwelling. But um, in all seriousness, Indigenous Artist Camp was great. So I, I, I had done stuff with my family, like um, walking through the bush with Wade a while. My dad's got a terrible humour, terrible humour. Um, he does Indigenous tour guides and all of that kind of stuff up on the country in um, Guku Yalanji land up in the Daintree or through that area there. And if you ever go on his tour, watch out because he'll trick you. He tricked me when I was a kid, when I was just a little kid walking through the bush, ran into Wade a while. I've got Wade a while all over me. Wade a while's a really spiky plant and it just um, digs into you. Anyway, I'm like, Dad, and he goes, oh, don't worry. If you just wait a while, it'll let go of you. And I believed him. So I'm like five minutes past, half an hour's past. He's gone bush. I can't even see. And I'm like, Dad, it still hasn't. I'm still waiting. Yeah, that's all right. Anyway, it's the worst thing. It leaves thorns in you. It's like a terrible plan. I don't know if you know it. Some people have to get like um, sticky tape to pull out the, to actually get all the spikes out of your skin and your thing. But he's got terrible humour. So there were things that I did growing up like fire stick making and, you know, making fires, um, which is a lot of hard work. But then on Indigenous Artist Camp, um, we got to learn how to do traditional ochre making and painting and spitting and painting I got to make um, I'll just grab it for you over here I made this uh, uh, this is a proper knife that could actually slice and dice a whole kangaroo I made that um, so you had to actually learn how to there's a whole heap of science and this is what I really wanted to happen in the upwelling because when I went to school I had teachers who basically told me Aboriginal people were like cavemen. They were savages. They didn't know anything. There were no science and all of that. So it's been really lovely to be a writer now and to be able to have hopefully my book in schools and to, to break down those, those myths because there's so much science um, in everything that we do in culture. It's incredible. Um, so um, I learned how to weave and to um, get the inner bark of um, the hibiscus or the the coastal cotton tree and you've got to soak it and you've got to roll it and weave it. I'm a terrible weaver, but I, I learned how to do it. So there were, so pretty much everything that you saw in the book I, I've done, I've made cooked bread traditional way. I've, um, and even the dolphins, oh my goodness. So for, for my birthday in our family, we like to do experiences. 
A, because we're surfers and it gives us an excuse to go surf different places as well. But for the book, we went to Tinkan Bay and we actually got to, they're a rare dolphin spirit uh, species. They're a humpback river dolphin species with a really long snout. So we went and hand fed the dolphins up there in the wild. Um, and that was when Echo came to mind because there was this tiny little six-week dolphin calf and she just went mad she just was jumping everywhere and so all of those things that I could write about um, were actually lived experiences so yeah I think it, it was just I just love synchronicity when things link up and those processes. I was I was very very uh, blessed to be able to do Indigenous Artists Camp to to learn all those things some things from my mob and my people and their shared knowledges um, like you have dark emu with with our star systems and all of that kind of stuff, the science of that, and because what would happen in the sky, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, what happened in the sky reflected on the earth. So mm. I don't know if you know, but that that's why I have those things in the in the book. So, Lister, I am. Um, I will just ask one last question. One of the central themes in the upwelling is believing in yourself and um, and keeping your mind strong um, despite the challenges that life might throw at you. Was that a theme that you wrote about intentionally? Why is it so important? Yeah, 100% intentionally. Um, so when I mentioned before when I was bedridden for three years and I was in constant pain and pain relief wouldn't actually work and the doctor said to me, she said, wow, someone who's in constant pain and your level of pain, you should be on antidepressants. It's amazing that you're not depressed. And I was really, really, I, I worked really hard at, um, and I always have about having a strong mind. So I haven't really ever shared this publicly or outside of my family. But so in the Torres Strait Islander culture, we have cousin sisters. They mean they're cousins that are closer sisters. And my sister, my cousin sister lived with us and we shared a room. And she actually committed suicide in when she was in her early 20s. And I just know that that is something that, especially since the invention of the iPhone, research has shown that depression between 14-year-olds through to 17-year-olds has increased 400% since the invention of the iPhone. And I know having a strong mind certainly got me through and helped me not even needing medication for those three years when I was in, I was bedridden, I was actually in a wheelchair, I was in constant pain. And so I just think it's important for all of us, but I think it's really important for young people. It's so important to be able to have a strong mind and it's something that they don't really teach in schools. Um, when I talk about fear being your friend, and not your foe. So when I go surfing, right, fear, fear are automatic responses. So you get your sweaty hands, you get all those visceral responses that we try and work into and get people to feel when we're riding. But in real life, so fear are these automatic responses that we can't control, right? And the other thing that fear does, it switches off your higher order thinking. So it switches off that intelligence. So I always go, well, if this is something that's been with all of us since the beginning of time, what are we meant to rely on then? So fear kicks in because we all face fear in all different areas of our life, right? 
Fear kicks in, we can't control it, it's automatic, and it switches off your higher order thinking, that intelligence. Now, school really relies on teaching intelligence. So what are we supposed to rely on then? Instinct, right? That's that emotional intelligence is instinct. Instinct and Aboriginal spirituality, like that is one of our biggest, strongest things in culture. Instinct is what gives you a strong mind too, right? Because you rely on something else. Sometimes you don't have all of the knowledge, right? Especially when we're younger. And even for me, like we're always in this situation. Sometimes we don't have the knowledge or we don't have the experience or we don't have that skill, but we all have instinct and we all can have a strong mind. There are so many different things you can do to have a strong mind. And I think that's what I love about it's getting to know yourself and getting to know your weaknesses. For me, one of my biggest weaknesses was oh, I'm a perfectionist and my mum used to go, you're so finicky, Lister. you're such a perfectionist. And I always thought it was a bad thing, but you know what? It is the best thing for editing, to be an editor, to be a perfectionist, to be so thorough. And Kate's laughing because I am super, super picky. I am so fussy. It is the best thing as an editor, right, Kate? It is, but yes. That comes through in my work, yeah? Mm, 100%. And so this is part of being a strong mind. So for you guys too, so there'll be things that maybe your parents or your peers have a crack at and they'll say things about you and you go, yeah, they're right. It is a weakness or it's something I don't like. Well, I'd love you to try and flip it. It took me a long time to realise that. But once I realised it, I ended up doing the best job that I'm good at, like writing this book, especially from the three point of views. It's the only time in my life I feel like I've used up my entire brain. Mm. I've had a whole heap of other jobs. I used to be a teacher. I was a teacher of the deaf. I was an interpreter. I was a personal photographer, graphic designer, web designer. I've had so many different jobs. But this one, when I was writing and editing, it was the only time that I felt like, especially the three point of views, was that. So having a strong mind, that's why it's one of those themes, because you have to know who you are to know what you're meant to do in in your life. And you can only know that by loving your weaknesses and flipping it and seeing, okay, if that's my weaknesses, this is going to be great for something. This is going to be something that I'm actually meant to do. I'm going to be absolutely good at it. They're just seeing it through a different lens, right? Yeah, absolutely. Such good advice. 100% agree, Lystra. Hey, um, I'm going to open the floor now. So if, if any of you would like to ask Lystra a question, please go for it. Yes, I'd like to ask a question if that's okay. So Lister, you talked about how having a strong mind and a strong instinct is absolutely essential in self-discovery and building self-identity. So what's like the what's like a couple of tips or advice that you can give to young people? Like how can we, what can we do in our lives constantly to just foster a strong sense of identity of mind and instinct? Great question, Kimmy. Really great question. I'm going to go back to fear being your friend. So for me, my greatest amount of growth where I could be an editor and writer was for me for surfing. So it might not be surfing for you, but surfing scared the hell out of me. I honestly was scared of sharks and big waves, and I honestly am every time I go out. I mean, you've heard the expression comfort zone, right? It's a bit cliche, I'm sorry, but it kind of just gets us all on the 
another cliche, the same page to talk about it. So it's like when you're younger, yeah, sure, I did bungee jumping and I did like I used to fish in crock waters, I used to spear crabs in crock waters. So I did a whole heap of things. Mm. They were things I wanted to do. Do you know what I mean? So that was where, yeah, I loved abseiling and rock climbing and all of that kind of stuff. So I loved doing that. I had to, it was only when I actually forced myself to do something that I didn't want to do and Mm. I was really scared to do. And I think if you can keep doing that, sure, do the things you love, but if there's something that scares the hell out of you and you don't want to do it because you don't want to look, for fast as a surfing term, it's in the book, you don't want to look like a kook, you don't want to look silly, you want to save face or you want to feel cool or whatever, I would do the things that absolutely scare you and who cares? I mean, I think for me, for, for whenever I'm doing something that I'm really afraid of, I always go, what's the worst thing that can happen? Okay, coming on here today, right? What's the worst thing I can ha- happen? I can slam my words. I can use the wrong words. I can accidentally headbutt the keyboard or something like that. If that's the absolute worst that can happen, I could faint. I could have a nosebleed, not that I've ever had a nosebleed, but I'm just trying to think. So whenever I have something like that, that's what I do. I go, what's the absolute worst? Because then somehow your brain just calms the heck down and goes, oh, that's the worst I can do. The other thing, you're not going to like this. The other thing to develop a strong mind is fasting. You could do a day juice fast. A day juice fast will then go, this is what your body, this is your intellect goes, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. Your instinct and your strong mind goes, actually, you know what? I live a pretty privileged life. I get all the snacks I want. I get all the food I want. I get all the fresh water I want whenever I want it. This actually would do me well to do, and obviously talk to your parents and medical advice and all of that. I just have to say that. But this is just an example of what I do. I I have done that. I've done that since I was uh, 12. I've done fasting since I was 12. I do it a, a few times a year because what it does then, it gets you not relying on your wants. And then what it does, it, it opens up another side to you. So when you learn to do that, you get stronger. And then I did a two-day one, maybe maybe when I was a bit older or a three-day one. Or, or it might be just I'm cutting out dessert and takeaway for this amount of time. And you set the date and you set your goals because then at what it does, it's you fulfilling that and having a strong mind. What's another way of doing it? There's uh, meditation. For me, I'm doing surf aid. I have long COVID, so it's going to be a little... A lot trickier for me this year. So surf aid, this is the second time they've done it. It means you surf every single day in September. Whether there's big waves, small waves, you have to surf every single day for September and you're raising funds for communities mainly in Indonesia who don't have fresh water, who don't have three meals a day, and it goes directly to them. So when you do your event like for that 30 days after you've finished and you see the tally, they'll go, okay, you've fed this many amount of families, we'll have clean water for that time. So what it does then, it gets us out of our own little funk and our own little world and it breaks down that self-centeredness, I guess. And I think that grows your instinct too because your instinct is really shutting down that analytical I'm doing this and that justifying because you know how easy I do it. So 
I could go, oh, yeah, well, I don't really want to surf. I know I'm doing surf aid, but I'm so tired and I, I can't do that tomorrow. And we justify and reason everything out so we look good. That's that intellectual side. When you're using instinct, you can't do that. So instinct can be like a spirituality too. It can be like synchronicity where things line up and are meant to be. And for me with my book, to tell you what, like, for example, with the Walamba, remember I said I needed to get permission and I needed it from a male who was from Bunjalung, right? And I had three female connections. And this is where I say I'm a lifelong learner. And I think another part of it is being willing to to know you're going to get it wrong and accept that. And they said to me, that's men's business. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry for putting you in that situation. I forgot it was men's business. I'll go and ask my cousin's cousin, right? Intellectually or even the Western way would be trying to control it. We freak out, we fear, and so we try and control. That's what happens, right? Whenever something goes wrong, we freak out, we fear, we try and control, and we throw everything at it to try and control it. When we have instinct... When we flip that fear and fear is your friend, you walk slowly, you take a deep breath and you go, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And the synchronicity. So for that, right, I need a permission within a couple of days. I'd been trying to get permission. We're going to print. It's all coming in. And I just went, okay, I'll either put sacred mountain because I don't want to come across with an intent that then puts pressure on someone else. That's not cultural protocol. Me coming with an intent that puts pressure on someone else means it's a self-centeredness from my part. If it's meant to be, it's meant to be. So I just decided if I'm meant to see Uncle Mark, I will see him and he will give me permission. If I'm not, I will just call it all sacred mountain and I won't have Wollumbin in there. The craziest thing happened. I saw him that day. I wasn't meant to see him that day. He wasn't meant to go to that meeting that day. No one even knew who was meant to go to that meeting. For some reason, he woke up and decided to go to the same place that I was at the same place. But even then, the Western way would be for me to race up and go, oh, it was meant to be. I need permission, blah, 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 blah. That my intent would be a self-centered intent. It would be that intellectual fear trying to control it if I go by instinct I sat in, I waited an hour or two, I was calm, and if it was meant to be, we would connect outside. I went outside, he came over and yarned with him. I still slowed down, I waited, and I let the conversation go. And then he asked about my book and I said, well, you know, I talked to your sister and this is what happened. I'm happy to say Sacred Mountain. I know that this process can take for six months. I don't want to put pressure on you in any way. I want to give you the opportunity. And he just said, I'll talk to the elders. I give you permission. I'll go and confirm with all the elders and the men's business and all of that kind of thing. It's a really tricky one to explain because it's not in our education system. But I really encourage you to do it because things like meeting the right people, even the people who endorsed my book, that was through synchronicity, through people introducing me to people and me not trying to control it and let that fear choke the life out of it. And the opposite of that fear, I guess, is the faith, that instinct, that intuition, that willing to walk slowly, that willing to go to come from a place of your intent being pure and going, hey, I let go of all control if it's meant to be. I give you the choice and give you the option. 
So if we can step back and go, hey, there are choices, and we even go and talk to the person who feels like they're not giving you a choice, whether it's parents or teachers or peers or whoever, and you'd be able to calmly discuss that and go, hey, look, I'm feeling stressed out and I'm feeling this way because I feel like I don't have a choice here. And it doesn't matter what your age is. You have a choice and you have a voice and you're very, very, very precious and important and you have a task to do here and now, not when you grow up, here and now. And the fact that you're doing this, this is part of it. It's amazing what you guys are doing. I thank you for it. And it's a privilege to be able to speak with you guys just a really really wonderful conversation and it's it's lovely to hear your voice and to hear your wisdom so yeah thank you so so much for talking to us and thank you for your amazing book the upwelling mm -hmm. and uh we can't wait till it comes out in the world and we're gonna give it lots of love and oh thank you yeah, wish it all the best thank you so much you can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast at our website, where you'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people, the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of this land, and pay respects to elders past, present, and those emerging. Thank you.